Let me see you put them up. Reach the sky, touch the stars up above, cause it's one time for the underdog. I was told a long time ago, when it comes down to business, do not talk about politics and do not talk about God. But in this sit-down with Deepak Chopra, we spend a lot of time talking about God, your existence, you know, all these other things that I've never spent time talking about on Valuetainment. You're going to enjoy this podcast. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to have you here with us. And uh, if we're going to see meet anywhere, San Diego is obviously one of the finest cities in America. I called it earlier the best-kept secret. I think more people are realize, realizing and it's not a secret anymore, but it's good to be here with you. So, thank you. I read about you, and you're obviously, to some, you have a very loyal following. Mario and I were in Hawaii a few months ago. I think I was in Hawaii with an insurance company a few months ago, and I saw 500 people outside. You know, they're doing yoga, and they're just like, I'm like, what is going on here? And everybody was so calm, and you know, I'm like always going, and you know, Hawaii always kind of brings you. I said, why are you guys so calm? What's going on? Oh. Deepak Chopra, he is here. Oh my gosh, you don't, do you know who he is? Do you study? I said, of course I know the name, but your following swears by you and what you talk about and teach them. But before we get into that part, you obviously come from India. Why don't we talk about before Deepak became Deepak? Who was Deepak in India when your father was a cardiologist and you decided to come to the States, I think in 1970, to study Western medicine? Talk about that transition before you became who you are today. Well, I grew up in India. I went to an Irish uh, Christian uh, missionary school. I then went to medical school and I qualified as a doctor and I came to the United States uh, to do my internship and then residency and then fellowship. I got uh, certified, uh, board certified in internal medicine, endocrinology, all in Boston. Got it. I was teaching at Tufts University, BU and also for a short period at Harvard. I trained in neurochemistry, which is um, basically neurotransmitters in the brain. And I realized that um, whatever happens in our mind or consciousness uh, translates into biochemistry in our brain and ultimately has an effect on our body. So I basically wrote the earlier books exploring uh, the mind-body connection. Later I realized that even that was inaccurate. Uh, Body-mind are a single experience in what we call consciousness. Body-mind is one entity, just like space-time is one entity, or mass-energy is one entity. Wave particles are one entity. Body-mind is one entity. Your whole body is also your subconscious mind. Uh, the brain, of course, orchestrates mind too, usually in English with an Indian accent. Using English with an Indian with English accent. So what what made you want to get into this? Was it your, you know, kind of seeing what your father was doing? And you kind of mm -hmm. wanted to follow in that direction with medicine because you kind of went against what he he was a cardiologist, mm -hmm. I believe, right? What got you so interested in this topic? Well, I realized from my own clinical experience that you could have two patients who had the same illness, mm -hmm. saw the same doctor, got the same uh, treatment but could have different outcomes. You know, one could recover, the other could die. So I realized that uh, human beings were more than molecules. Human beings have personal relationships, they engage in social interactions, they think, 
they feel, they love, they get upset, they get angry, they get jealous. We are very complex creatures and if you only look at the physical mechanisms of disease, you might be lucky and a person might recover, but you might not have that recovery as well. So everything from daily experiences like eating, breathing, digestion, metabolism, elimination, how we experience the world of the five senses, our thoughts, our feelings, our imagination, our creativity, our fears, our anxieties, our aspirations, our emotions, all of that influences what's happening in the biology. So I realized that uh, medicine as we practiced it is very effective for acute illness. So we, we or we India? We here in, in Western. West. Yeah. It's very effective when you have somebody who has an acute illness. So if you have pneumonia, you need an antibiotic. You break a leg, you need to see an orthopedic surgeon. You have appendicitis, you need surgery, etc. Mm. But when we look at chronic illness, you know, uh, the vast majority of chronic illnesses, including cancer, heart disease, uh, autoimmune disease, frequent infections, degenerative disorders, diabetes, type 2, obesity, metabolic syndrome, which is most of illness in our society. When you look at that, it's related to lifestyle. And 95% of illness is not genetically mediated. Only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant, which means they predict the disease. 95%, when you look at the human body, you'll find there's low-grade inflammation. And people don't even know that. And it's related to stress. It's related to lack of sleep. It's related to emotional um, distress. It's related to poor diet. It's related to lack of exercise. It's related to so many factors that uh, no pharmaceutical agent is going to help. You say 95% of it. That's what we're learning, maybe even more. Only 5% of gene mutations that cause disease. A mutation is a genetic mistake. So, you know, if somebody has a Baraka gene like Angelina Jolie had, that's a fully penetrant gene and you can't prevent the breast cancer from happening. So people usually do a preventive mastectomy. But, you know, that's less than 5% of all illness. And you've said in the past before, and I, I read about this, the fact that you said to age is a decision. You choose to age. You don't have to age. I think something, and maybe I'm saying... How you age, how you age yeah. is a choice. So, you know, I'm 71 and a half okay. right now, but biologically, I feel like I'm 35 or less. You feel 35 or less? Less. And I have the mental and physical capacity of somebody it, like that. Be a little more specific. What do you mean you feel like you're 35 or less? If you measure my blood pressure, my heart rate, my immune system, my hormone levels, my biological age would be much less than my chronological age. So, you know, when you look at aging, there's biological age, which you can measure through cholesterol, HDL ratios, blood pressure, immune function, hormones, fat content, skin thickness, bone density, aerobic capacity, sugar metabolism. These are the ways you measure biological age. Then there's chronological age, the date you were born. That's your chronological age. My chronological age is 71 plus. But biologically, I'm not there yet, okay? And then there's psychological age, 
which means how do you feel? How do you feel young? Do you feel old, etc. So aging is a very complex phenomenon and in humans it's not something that's so fixed. In the last century for example, only a hundred years ago the average lifespan of a human being in this country was 49 years. A okay. hundred years ago, so 1918. Uh, yeah, about. Kind. The average, I'm right. talking no, about the average. I'm with okay? you. Of course, there are always people sure. who live long. Today, the fastest growing segment of the American population is over the age of 90 and close to 100. That means the rate of growth of the population, the average rate of growth is much bigger, as I said, the fastest growing segment of the American population is over the age of 90 as a proportion. Which means a kid born today is probably going to live to 120 years old. Let's just it's, say that's it's, it's not all, 90 years well, old. Well, people are, people are predicting that, right. yes. So let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you, is that a, a, test to, a testament to how much medicine has advanced over the years? Because outside of that, what else would we give credit to? Well, it's very interesting. When you really look at the credit, it is improved nutrition and sanitation. So people were dying of malnutrition, which made them more susceptible to infections mm -hmm. and other disorders. And then sanitation and vaccination. That's how we, it's not antibiotics. Let's say it's not pharmaceuticals. It's still conditions of living. You know, better hygiene, better nutrition. But now the, the increment to that is understanding what causes accelerated aging, lack of sleep stress, unhealthy emotions like hostility and anger and resentments and guilt and shame and depression and anxiety, lack of mind-body coordination, that's where the yoga and the breathing techniques come in. Um, poor nutrition, right now most of our food uh, that comes um, uh, to us at home is manufactured, refined, processed, contains chemicals, contains antibiotics, contains steroids because animals are fed that and even, you know, there are pesticides in the ground which sure. are petroleum products. How does that cause accelerated aging? It causes inflammation of something called the microbiome which is the genes that are in your gut which are microbial genes. So 99% of the genetic information in your body right now is not human. You only have 1% of the genes in your body are from your parents. 99% of the genes in your body right now are microbial. You're a few human so I'm cells. I'm a mutant. I'm like an X-Man. Yeah, you're, you're a few. I like that. You're a few human cells hanging on to a bacterial colony. So when you put food in your mouth, the first thing that they encounter, the food encounters, is these bacterial genes. And if your food is inflamed, then the bacterial genes get inflamed, causes inflammation in the body, you get metabolites uh, that are called cytokines. There's lots of complexity between the human genome, the microbiome and lifestyle. But knowing this, we can extend our age. So, so okay, so let's go back to that though. 100 years ago, 1918, give or take, we're living up to 49. Today it's 90. A newborn today could live, I've read it, 110 years old, 120 years old. If a kid is born today, on average, they're just saying based uh, on... Well, that's the expectation. Expectation. No one's going to know, obviously. We have to wait 120 years to no, see if it's going to... No, but the trend is in that direction. That's right. So I see a couple different things, and I want to hear your take on this. One, 
does that mean we are in less stress today and the world population is doing more yoga? Are we more calm today? That's why we're living up to 90 years old? No. Or is it, it then why are we living longer today than 100 years ago? Well, I said the average increase in lifespan is because of what I told you, better conditions of living. People used to die of heat stroke, now there's air conditioning. Got it. So okay. it's just advanced technology maybe added with lifestyle plus advanced medicine. Would Correct. you put all those together? I think that's very Okay, good. fair enough. Okay, so that's good to know if we're going that direction. And, and obviously nowadays... But here, no, this is also another issue that's arising as a result of that. Yeah. If a person is 85 years old, there's a very high likelihood of them having Alzheimer's. And again, when you look at the genes of Alzheimer's or dementia, there are only four or five percent that predict that. The rest are again related to lifestyle. So if somebody has lack of sleep, for example, yeah. which has been underestimated, is the number one predictor of premature death from uh, cardiovascular illness, but also associated with Alzheimer's. So does that mean we're getting more sleep today than we did a hundred years ago? Not everybody. No, it's so. It's not. You know, you are trying to point out one thing. No, it's not I'm not trying thing. to point it out. What I'm, <coughs> what I'm trying to say. What those I'm, who have good sleep, those who manage stress, those who have a healthy diet, those who have better nutrition, those who have better conditions of mm -hmm. living, they have a better chance of living longer and healthier. And this does not replace technology or medicine for acute illness. Okay, so you, I think you also said something in that same uh, uh, article, the fact that you think a man can take care of themselves in a way that maybe they'll live forever. Maybe no. there was not live forever, it was uh, live for a long time. So can man live 200 years? A lot of people are saying that uh, humans can, but right now there's no scientific basis for that. What do you think? Um, at the moment, I can't say that because, uh, you know, we have a genetic clock that's programmed for death. So even if you didn't get heart disease or diabetes or whatever, you know, cancer, the genetic clock, the cells multiply at a certain rate yep. and after a certain uh, amount of time, they stop. And this is controlled by your genes. So this is nature's way of uh, keeping life fresh. So it, it, do, do you think we're going to get to a point where we're, you know, we're going to come out with such ridiculous scientific, someone's going to come out with a pill that you're going to live forever? Do you think we're ever going to get to that point? Well, I would never say it's impossible. But at the moment, there's no scientific basis. So possibility, but... but possibility always. Would, would Who you, would have predicted even 200 years ago that we'd be flying in these big ships that heavy, we call airplanes, yeah. heavier than... Uh, you know, tons of, uh, so many times heavier than the atmosphere or Even air, the internet, people can't even describe the internet. email yeah. or all of that. Do, would you want to live forever? Would, would No, I think living forever is a guarantee for eternal senility. Eternal <laughs> senility. Break it down for a sixth grader watching <laughs> well, this. We would be doomed to eternal senility. Death is a way of keeping life fresh. In fact, we die every day and we are born anew every day. You know, the cells in your body, mm -hmm. they, the, your stomach cells die every five days and then you have new ones. Your skin cells die once a month. Your liver recycles every six weeks. Your skeleton recycles 
every three months. Nature has a way of recycling everything, whether it's matter, energy, or molecules, or consciousness. What is, what is our mankind's infatuation, maybe not yours, with wanting to live for a very long time, even some wanting to live forever? You know, you see movies that they come out and they say, oh my gosh, you know, we finally figured out the formula for living forever. What is our infatuation wanting to live for so long? Is it the fact that our number one fear on life is death? The number one fear of life is death, and yet death is universal. So I usually say, since death is universal and nobody has escaped it, don't take it personally. <laughs> so I'm in the life insurance business, <laughs> and we see what happens with, because uh, uh, life insurance is linked to how many years the average life expectancy that's of a right. male is and a female yeah. is, right? So yeah. that's how we yeah. sell insurance. Yeah. these days, in and the 80s, usually, yes. yeah. And life, cost of life insurance today is the cheapest it's ever been. People think inflation goes higher, it's cheaper than it's ever been. Why? Because it's a mathematical formula. The man used to live to 69, now it's 75, now it's 79, it has to be cheaper. Sure. So it's it keeps a little getting, longer in women than men. Yeah. In women live four years longer than they do, on average three to four years longer. That's the four years of celebration, you know, That's it's like right. the thing, you know, I'm free, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I finally have the time to go out there and hang out with my friends. But uh, you know, it, going, going back to that topic when you're talking about death and, and, and you know, we're eventually going to die and... Um, it, Actually, it, you know, uh, this may be too much for your audience. The real you is not subject to birth and death. What dies is an experience that we call the body. So that's happening all the time. The body you had as a baby is dead now. The body you had as a toddler is dead. The body you had as a teenager is dead. In fact, the body you had two years ago uh, is not the body you have right now. Every single 98% of the molecules that you have in the body are not the same. So birth and death are happening all the time. If you realize from a spiritual point of view, which maybe your audience may or may not be interested in, you are not the body. You are the consciousness in which the body is having and is in which the body is an experience. Deepak, who is your audience? Who is your audience? Because I audience, saw your audience and, and I'm, I can put a number to your audience, but I want to see what is the ideal follower audience of Deepak look like? Anyone who is interested in self-awareness and knowing who they are. W would you put a number to it or no? I mean, I have 15 million people on social media, so that's the audience right now and growing. I think you're tapping into an audience that no one else is reaching for in the self-help uh, uh, realm. I, I really believe that. don't even call it self-help, it's self-awareness. Self-awareness, you know, some call it self-help, some call it personal development, some call it, you know, personal growth. The audience you're tapping into is a very different audience than everybody else's. There's not a lot of people that are tapping into the audience. slowly, uh, slowly waking up from the hypnosis of social conditioning. Yes, yeah, so I'll give you an idea. Uh, so when, I, when I've seen it, the, the audiences you have, I'll see a uh, um, 40s, 80% uh, uh, of them were women that are coming to your audience, there's not a lot of people that are going after that audience. And it just seems like you've I'm not going after I know you're anything. not, you've attracted that audience. Yes. It's not like you're yeah. going after it and let's try to market ourselves to this. You've attracted that. Why do you think that audience is turned on to your approach? Because I look at you, you know, I look at some other personalities. Some personalities are very high strung, right? And you're just so intense and you know, you know, success and go do this and go do that. I may fall into that myself. You're very calm, easygoing, relaxed. 
you know, you, every daughter would love to have a father like you, you know, he's so loving, he's so caring, he's so easygoing. You think that's what it is on, on why they're so turned on to your energy? Maybe, I don't try to guess. Yeah, so I, maybe us I think outsiders. Maybe it's my Indian accent. Yeah, it's probably what it is. We were recently in uh, Mumbai. We were in Mumbai and uh, we went to um, the, the place where Gandhi lived for, I think, like 13 years. He lived in this one place for 13 years. And then uh, we went to the slums. We went to a few other places. I was speaking at an IIT event with uh, the, the chairman of uh, um, Bank of India, SBI. Arundhati, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think, Bachari, I think that's her name. And uh, we had a very good time being there. But the energy and the spirit a lot in that community was very calm, easygoing. Um, and I don't know if it's a cultural thing. I once read somewhere that said... It was it, a cultural thing. It's uh, being uh, destroyed now with all the stress and uh, relentless ambition of the new generation that wants to be like everybody in the U.S. What do you think about that? What do you think about the relentless ambition? It does, the way you said it, you're not, you're not too, doesn't sound like you're too fond of it. I think there's a better way to achieve success. You know, the success, if it costs so much and you end up having a heart attack and then what's the point? Or you get up, get sick, what's the point? Or you age prematurely or you die, what's the point? In my view, success uh, should come effortlessly. Uh, it has come effortlessly to me. You know, when you know what your purpose in life is, when you know what you want, when you have uh, goals that are worthy. So I define success as the progressive realization of worthy goals combined with the ability to love, have compassion, but most importantly, to not be overshadowed by the melodrama that's around you. There's too much melodrama, you know, whether it's fake news or real news, it's all melodrama. The more drama there is, uh, the better it sells. So... Do you if, consume any content yourself? I look out of curiosity. Do you look at the, the news? Do you watch? of the world, yeah. So you do follow, do you have like a, do you follow CNN or MSNBC I on do, a daily basis? I do all of them, but just to follow how insane the world is. And that right now what we call society, global society, I think is a lunatic asylum. I've picked up my visitor's badge. So I watch the show, but I don't get involved in it. So let's, let's transition to topics and let's go into maybe uh, something else. For me, you know, when I was By coming By the way, up, if you don't see the world as insane, you're declaring your own insanity. I, I Wait, this world has, you know, let's put it all together. Climate change, war, terrorism, extinction of species, destruction of ecosystem, poison in the food chain, atom bombs, nuclear weapons, mechanized death. It's insanity. Do you think that's just the fact that we've become better marketers or you think that that's always been around? All it's that always, always been, been around. around, but we have modern capacities and tribal minds and this combination will lead to our extinction. This combination will lead to our extinction, but we've done it multiple times before. It's not like we've never done it before. But we didn't have this kind of capacity that we have today whether it's technological or it's mechanized death or bombs. So are you thinking that's the direction we're going? Unless we all wake up and realize that, you know, we are so interconnected and so interdependent. So you think that is possible? Do you think world peace, like 
a perfect world peace is possible? I think it will require radical personal transformation because there's no social transformation in the absence of personal transformation. The society is made of people. So if there's a critical mass of people um, going in the direction of peace, harmony, love, social justice, economic justice, sustainability, then yes, it's possible. You really think it's possible? Well, for lack of a better thing to do, that's my goal, to reach a critical mass of people so we can have a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier and joyful world. It that may not work, but then at least... Don't you think, don't you think, don't you think partly uh, uh, why maybe what you talk about works is because you have an opposition and if you didn't have an opposition, you wouldn't be Deepak Chopra today? Meaning, you answer the question I'm asking. Yeah, so yeah, explicit adversaries or enemies are implicit allies. You have 15 million people that follow you on social media because you have, you know, 50, 100 million people that disagree with you. Yes. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, but you've, been called a, you've been called a charlatan, you've been called a salesperson, you've been called all this stuff. Yeah. And you, you accept, you don't accept, you don't, uh, you don't used to take it personally, but it doesn't bother you today when they're saying that because you also have a massive loyal following. This is, this is the point I'm trying to make. I think a lot of times when, when the conversation happens about world peace, but by the way, we're with Ariana Huffington and she talks about sleep. She wrote a book called Sleep Your Way to the Top, you know, good book, and she even made a bed nowadays for iPhones. I don't know if you've seen her new bed she's yeah. made for phones and she puts her phones to sleep on this bed. I got one of them in my house and it just sits there. My phone still haven't slept in that bed yet, okay? But she has all this stuff that she does. I think there's an audience that, um, I know this is gonna sound strange, but I think somehow if there was no evil, there would not be any good to recognize and appreciate. Well, all experiences by contrast. So there's no up without a down, there's no pleasure without pain, there's no joy without suffering, there's no heart without cold, etc. So experiences by contrast, yes. And you know, adversaries keep each other going, like Trump and what's his name, Kim Jong or Putin, they yep. keep each other yep. going. So as I've said, explicit enemies are implicit allies. Got it, just maybe today, because you know, we forget the fact that there is, there is a group of people in the world that have access to a button, that if they press this button, you know, we got 13,000 nuclear bombs around the world, give or take. That number could be less, it could be yeah, higher. Yeah, but somebody, some kid in East Europe, in some remote yeah. village, could use their handheld uh, phone yeah. uh, and interfere with air traffic signals, poison the food chain. You want me to give you ideas? I shouldn't. Because it's, it's going to be much easier than depending on uh, Trump a president or, president or something like that doing any, it. You know, look at what, uh, you know, if, if the hacking story is true, American democracy yeah. was interfered by, by some guys sitting in remote places no with a little device. Do you know who John McAfee is, the, the founder of McAfee Antivirus? I don't know if you know who he is. You've probably seen McAfee Antivirus on your computer. Yes. He's a founder of it. Very strange guy. If you, Don't study what he's done because it'll, it'll, It'll get you to want world peace even more if you actually see what he's done and what he what he what's I'm not attached to world peace. If we get extinct, then nature will have decided itself. that the human species yeah. was an interesting experiment that didn't I work. I think I see it more like that as well. No, but one of the things he said is, he said, I think the biggest thing in the world today to worry about isn't a nuclear war. 
He said it's a cyber war. Yeah. He said, you know, what you really need More to worry about. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a twenty. Easier. Yeah, it's so much easier and way more effective, and it can hurt way more people if a guy know how to get into banks and you know electricity and all this other interfere stuff interfere with pacemakers ventilators poison the food chain like put this up electricity, it, interfere with their traffic signals let's not talk yeah about so that. it sounds like you would be the perfect guy for that if you wanted to go evil <laughs> you, you could be the the guy to do that so so you know years ago for me i was an atheist for a big part of my life i lived in iran and uh, 10 years uh, in Iran when the war happened between Iran and Iraq. I lived in Tehran and we got bombed many, many times. It was terrible. I couldn't believe in God. We'd go to church and I'd get kicked out of Bible study all the time because I would say, I don't believe God exists. There's no, if God exists, why did 78 people die yesterday? Why did Saddam keep you know, sending planes over the border and we hear this, and we'd hear that. It's just everybody would get scared. You'd run to the basement. You'd hide under the stairs. I said, there's no way God exists. I go into the army. I have my own experience at an army boot camp when somebody invited me to get away from boot camp for two days because my PT score was high. And then I met a man and from their relationship started. And one day for me, I became curious. I studied Scientology. I wanted to know everything about Mormonism, Christianity, Judaism. I just started consuming all this content. And that went for about two year period. I would go to Scientology centers. I'd go to LDS churches. I'd go to every single thing I could. I was so obsessed about wanting to figure out that part of my life. Because for me, this is for me, and I want to ask you this because you wrote a book about this. I wrote several books about this. It's one of them that did very, very well. You, you, the seven, seven Spiritual Laws of Success. I kind of want you to talk about those seven spiritual laws. The moment I was connected spiritually for myself that made sense to me, nothing could get in my way. And, and the pressure of wanting to do it for somebody else was gone. The pressure was more for me to do it because I was serving a higher purpose. To you, when you wrote the book, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, can you, can you talk a little bit about those seven spiritual laws of success to you? Yeah, I wrote the book looking at just how phenomena in nature occur. In nature, you see effortless spontaneity. You know, a bird is not trying to fly, it just flies, right? Children learn to walk and speak effortlessly. Uh, seeds sprout into flowers and in every seed there's the promise of thousands of forests. So there's something called spontaneous creativity in nature. Spontaneous. And um, our biology is an example of that. It's spontaneously self-regulating, self-organizing, self-healing. Um, left alone, your body functions with effortless ease. So the seven spiritual laws was how does consciousness transform itself into experience? By consciousness I mean that part of our being in which we are having any experience. Right now we are having an experience. Mm -hmm. The people who are watching us are having an experience. Where is that experience happening? Now you know if you go to a neuroscientist they might say it's happening in the brain. But no, what's happening in the brain are neural correlates of experience, chemical, electrochemical activity. But you're not experiencing electrochemical activity, you're experiencing colors, shapes, sounds, textures, smells. You're experiencing thoughts, emotions. This in science today is called the hard problem of consciousness. How do atoms and molecules produce thought and feeling and emotion and intention and inspiration and longing and aspiration and even these questions, is there a God, etc. 
So the reason why people can't find an explanation for consciousness is that there's no biological explanation for consciousness. You ask anyone, there's nobody knows. There's no biological explanation for existence. There's no biological explanation for awareness of existence. Not only do we know that this exists, we also know that we know that it exists. In the absence of consciousness, even if it existed, we wouldn't know, right? So in many of the great spiritual traditions, they don't even use the word God. They use the word consciousness as the ultimate basis of who, all experience. Which, which one? <clears throat> who uses that? Vedanta, Buddhism, oh, okay. uh, many it. of those uh, Eastern philosophical Eastern. systems. Yes. They don't use the word God. They use the word consciousness. And consciousness is that in which we have mental and perceptual experience. So, if I asked you, what's this? Let me ask you, what's this? What is this? This, this little things? Or what that's you're a, sitting That's a couch. It's a, it's it's a couch, a, yeah. right? Uh, what's this? Cotton. It's a sweater. Okay. What's this? Your hand. Okay. Now, if you were a baby, you wouldn't have these concepts, right? All you would see is colors, shapes, smells, textures. Okay. And you would be bathed in this experience that we call perception, colors, shit. The rest is a human construct. So far as a human construct for a shape, a color, a texture, a smell. This is how we created human civilization. We gave names to experiences in consciousness and then we objectified that in the notion of a physical world. What's your point with this? There's no such thing. There's only consciousness transforming itself into experience. Once you understand the mechanism, then you'll understand what the seven spiritual laws is. Consciousness is a field of infinite potential. It moves through giving and receiving. I hate to use the word karma because all people have strange ideas about it, but every action creates a response and you can choose your actions. The world functions with least effort. Intention organizes its own fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Detachment is the key to getting anything you want. And if you don't have a purpose in life, then your life is meaningless. So these are the seven spiritual laws. Talk about detachment. We were with Jaco yesterday. It's amazing that we're sitting with Jaco. Jaco, I don't know if you know who Jaco Willink is. Jaco was a 20-year Navy SEAL. He was a commander of one of the units of a Navy SEAL Team uh, 3. Uh, and he talked about, in his book called Extreme Ownership, he talked a lot about detach, detaching yourself. So what does detaching yourself mean to you? Detachment simply means it's impossible to grasp any experience. Experience is ungraspable. So what happened to your childhood? It's over, right? What happened to last night? It's over. What happened to five minutes ago? It's over. What happens to these words by the time you hear them? It's over. So every experience you have is transient. You can't hold on to it. Just like you can't hold on to your breath. Uh, if you do, you'll suffocate. So detachment means recognizing that grasping at the ungraspable is impossible. Change is the only non-change. And therefore, the moment you attach yourself to an experience, you're attaching yourself to a ghost. It doesn't exist. So, if you want to enjoy Grasping life, the ungraspable is impossible. Yeah, right? Because you can't grasp an experience. You know, the philosopher yeah. Wittgenstein, the German philosopher, yeah. he said, our life is a dream. 
we are asleep, but once in a while we wake up enough to know we are dreaming. So what do we know wake up to? We wake up to the consciousness, the spirit in which the dream is happening. This right now is a lucid dream in a vivid now. So in other words, we're on shrooms right now, is what you're saying. We're, yes, we're high, yeah, this we're is naturally good, yeah, high right this, now. We are, on, we are experiencing a virtual reality, <laughs> and now we are extending that to augmented reality and artificial intelligence. And who is God to you? When, when you who? think about God, who is God to you? I would say, um, we're all God in drag. You are the divine intelligence that has assumed this form. What do you pray for? Because you meditate. Obviously, you're big, yeah, you're big on yoga. You meditation pray is not prayer. Meditation is um, getting rid or going beyond all thought, all experience, all perception into the stillness which is the source of all experience. Do you pray? Um, not really. I ask myself questions like, who am I? What do I want? What's my purpose? What am I grateful for? These are spiritual questions. And then if you live the questions, life has a strange way of moving you into the answers. So when you were uh, asking the question, did you ever pursue the question of who is God, where it pulled you to getting the answer for that? If you can imagine God, if you can think about God, if you can conceptualize God, it's not God. If God exists as infinite being, then God is beyond imagination or conceptualization. Of course, you can write infinity in a mathematical formula. Sure. And by the way, this is what now all the physicists do. They include infinity in all their <laughs> calculations, but you can't grasp infinity, right? So God is the immeasurable potential for all experiences and all knowing in every living species. Your experience is a human experience. What does the world look like to a butterfly? What does the world look like to a snake that senses infrared? What does it look like to a bat that senses echo of ultrasound? See, the experience is so complex and unexplainable the source of that experience is an infinite consciousness, so, which cannot be conceptualized. The only thing you can do is be humbled by the magnificence of existence and have reverence for existence, and that's a holy experience. So, you know, in every religion, by the way, is founded on a religious experience. And what was the experience? Transcendence, the emergence of love, compassion, joy, equanimity, the desire for truth, goodness, beauty, and harmony and the loss of the fear of death because death happens to your body and your mind but not to the consciousness in which body and mind are unexperienced. So what do you believe happens when we die? What happens to us? What happens to the space in this room if uh, this house is destroyed? Gone. No. The space cannot be destroyed or created. The meaning the space, the space? The space in this the room. Space, but and the physically, space, but physically it's gone. The shape that you give this is gone. So nothing happens to you when you die. Elaborate. What do you, what do you mean by that? This body-mind system is what consciousness has chosen to have a communication with that body-mind system. The consciousness in which this experience is happening is not in time. Okay, so what's the most common word that you use in any language? Love? No. I? I. I was a baby, I had Chinese food, I went to the movies, I uh, am in love, I am engaging in the stock market. 
So I is the common factor in every changing experience. The experience is changing, including the experience of the body, the experience of that which you call the mind, and the experience of that which you call the world. It's always changing, but I is constant, okay? And that I is not in time. And that I is not a person. The person itself is a process in that I. Are you understanding? I'm understanding okay, you, so yeah. when you know what is I, I is a timeless awareness in which we have infinite experiences. It's our destiny to play an infinity of roles. I'm playing the role of this guy that you're interviewing now, but I also play the role of a doctor, a son, a father, etc., etc. But I'm not the roles I'm playing. I is the spirit, the consciousness in which these roles come and go. So just like the space in this room yeah. cannot be destroyed or created, it can be given a shape. The real you is not subject to birth or death, only experiences. So are you referring to reincarnation or you're saying when we die, do we go into another body and I'm that refer- I continue? I'd rather not use the word reincarnation, I'd use the word recycle. So what recycles is the seeds of memory and desire and imagination because in the deeper reality there's no such thing as a person. A person is a process. What's the difference between recycling and reincarnation in your eyes? Reincarnation conjures up this individual guy who's now, you know, was in Iran and now is um, reincarnating in the US or whatever. But there's no such thing as an individual person. The person itself is a process in a non-local, infinite consciousness. It's a speck of God. So you're from Iran. Rumi said, you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're also the ocean in the drop. Rumi, the great Sufi poet, from a, you know, Persian poet, he Rumi said, and Hafiz are on yeah, so Rumi says, we come spinning out of nothingness, scattering stars like dust. Look at these worlds spinning out of nothingness. This is actually you. So, you know, great people like Rumi, had insight into the true nature of existence. They didn't get bamboozled by um, appearances. So again, to simplify it, the difference between recycling and reincarnation, you don't want to use the word reincarnation, but it sounds very similar to reincarnation. The seeds of experience recycle. Yes. The seeds of experience recycle. Right. Is this why they call some people old souls? Because there was a- Every soul is- old because it was never born and it's not subject to death. It's infinite. It's timeless. I is the timeless factor in every time-bound experience, including the experience that you call your body, your mind. Because there's no such thing as a fixed body. It's clear. You don't have the same personality you had as a child, right? You don't have the same... So am I... But am the I, essence in which that experience... By the way, I'm, I'm asking these questions because I want to know your thinking. I want to know your belief. So am I the spirit... I don't believe in believe. Belief is a cover-up for insecurity. If I asked you, you believe in gravity, you would say that's a ridiculous question. Your, so this is factual your to you. Knowing, you are certain about this. Your knowing has to be experiential and it has to be clear. But to say that, to say that means you are certain about yes. what you're saying. Yes, I don't okay. identify with There's a lot of people this. that could question you, by the way, just so yeah, you know, so yeah, that could that's be. that's fine. You know, it, it, I've it, lived through that, my friend. I get it, but there's a difference between saying I believe because I don't know it all versus saying I know because I know it all. That's, that's how it would come that's across. That's called self-knowledge, self-awareness. 
self-realization. I know a lot of people that are like that and they have faith and they believe in a higher power, right? So I can't say that person doesn't have self-awareness or self-knowledge or self-realization. I think your beliefs can be shaken very easily. Isn't that what I make makes a, by us the way, humans, distinction between faith and uh, belief? So faith is the certainty of the invisible consciousness without which there would be no experience of the visible world. I haven't seen that definition. I've seen the Faith is believing in something that no, you have I not made yet. Up that oh, moment. you made it up. Yeah. That's your. That's yeah. not. That's not Webster's. That's no. Chopra's definition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. In your eyes, who was, who was Jesus in your eyes? Who was Moses in your eyes? Who was who was Muhammad in your eyes? Like who, who were these? Uh, 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 to you, would be characters these, who were there in your these eyes. These people had a religious experience, or what we call spiritual experience. They tried to articulate it. And people didn't understand it because they didn't have the experience, so they created an ideology around it. And then they went to war, okay, with each other. Have you read the Quran and the Bible? Yes, sir. Okay. I have written a book on the life of the Prophet Muhammad. I'd be happy to give it to you. Would love to I've read I've written it. a book on the life of the Buddha, and I've written two books on Jesus. You've written two books on Jesus. Yes. So who is Jesus to you? A messenger. So who is, who is uh, we live in a pretty, you talk about universe when we were not, we didn't have the camera on, so let's go to that because I know that's something you do want to talk about. Who is the creator of this crazy, insane, out of this world, you know, universe that we live in? If there is not, if everybody's God, is it in science? In the deeper is it? reality, the universe that we call the universe, humans call the universe, is a human construct. Um, let me try and explain that to you, okay? Just like you call this a couch and this a shirt, humans have created the construct that there's a universe for modes of knowing and experiencing consciousness. Objectively, if you look at the universe right now, and the number one question, by the way, in science, and you don't have to believe me, go on the internet and say, what are the open questions in science? The number one question in science is, what's the universe made of? So why is that an unknown? Well, 70% of the universe is something called dark energy, which is expanding the universe faster than the speed of light. And what's expanding is the space between galaxies. Okay, so right now, the cosmic horizon is 47 billion light years away from where we are, and galaxies are tumbling across that. There are two trillion galaxies, according to latest estimates. There are 700 sextillion stars, according to latest estimates. There are uncountable trillions of planets. That is less than 4% of the universe. 70% is dark energy. 26% is another mysterious entity called dark matter. It's invisible because it's not atomic. So we don't know what it's made of. So why do we even call it matter? It's responsible for most of the gravity in a galaxy. So it holds a galaxy together. If there was no dark matter, planets would spiral off and get lost in intergalactic space. So we're left with 4% of the universe, which is atomic, or which 99.99% is invisible interstellar dust, probably hydrogen or helium. The visible universe, two trillion galaxies is 0.01%. And that's all the 700 sextillion stars. Now 0.01% atomic, atomic, but atoms are made of particles and particles have a dual nature. The, you know, they're particles as material objects, but they're also waves. And you ask people, what are these waves made of? 
they say possibilities. So where do these possibilities exist? They say Hilbert space. What is Hilbert space? It's an infinite multi-dimensional space. Where is it? Shut up and calculate. Bottom line, we don't know what the universe is made of. And the best answer is it's made of nothing. That's the best scientifically accepted answer. So if it's made of nothing, why does it look like this? No one knows. That's called the hard problem of consciousness. But then, but then the challenge comes back to then how could you be so certain about what you know, not believe in? If I, that, if, I if experience that's the, case. the invisible every time I transcend experience. Wouldn't that be everybody though? I mean, what's different with you and the rest of the world? They don't take time to be still. Do you think you're the only person that experiences that at that level? No, no, this is all religious. All religious experience is based on I, transcendence. I, I get it. So I, uh, to me, to me, based on what you just said, two trillion is what's visible and that's 0.01%. percent, which means a thousand times more out there of two trillion. That's if that's the case, and that's how much it's known, it's it's no, it's unknown, unknown, not known, and maybe unknowable because you cannot interact with something that's not made of atoms. Wouldn't that Your require us to have more faith? It requires you to be bewildered, astonished, humbled, and reverent. I would agree with that. And wouldn't that be to say that I don't know instead of I know? Because to say, I know with all those data that we don't have any idea what about in the all universe. What I know is that the invisible is manifesting as the visible. That's it. That's faith. That's not belief. It's a fact that the invisible is manifesting as the visible. Right this moment. My I've, I've gone to a lot of churches. And I can tell you the churches that I would struggle with the most is when the pastors were 100%. So listen, do, you what, know, do you know what I mean by yeah, that? No, I'm not saying 100. Yeah. Listen, let me I want to really, I, I really want to hear so that. So we want to be clear on this, okay? Because you, you, I said belief. I said, what do you believe? And he says, belief is a sign of insecurity. Yeah. So, so that means if I say I believe I have some insecurities, which I do, I, I should have insecurities because the universe is 2 trillion visible, 0.01%. That's a thousand times invisible. So it what gives me the right to use the word no? You phrase it, okay? Let me say this, Please. okay? There is no scientific explanation for existence or awareness of existence. So, faith begins with bewilderment, astonishment, gratitude, humility and reverence. And then it becomes, it becomes concrete when your internal reference point is not your mind, not your body, not anything material, but that which is invisible. And you have to be comfortable with that. The invisible, which people call soul, spirit, God, divine, Ein Sof, Allah, Brahman, those are words. And you know, we have to use words because we communicate. But it cannot be communicated. Rumi again said, God's language is silence. Everything else is poor translation. Therefore, if you want to be certain, you have to transcend into silence. Yeah, so for me, when, when, when I study the topic faith, what strengthens faith is, faith is doubt. Doubt is what made Martin Luther go and, you I know, love that, yeah. I love that, because skepticism is, leads ultimately to faith, yes. That's the story of my life, you know, yes. my, I think doubt is what That's leads beautiful. to. A, a, That's beautiful. A level of curiosity yeah. Yeah. of wanting so to learn. So you begin with insecurity, and then you ultimately end up in the certainty of 
your being which is beyond cognition, perception and experience which is beyond subject-object split. So right now, my experience is I'm the subject of experience, you're the object. Those who are watching us are subjects of experience, we are the objects. But reality is beyond subject-object split. I think we need a part two of this. Before we wrap up, it, 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 talk, talk a little bit about your book, The Healing Self, if you could. Well, uh, this is the, the follow-up with Rudy Tanzi, who's a geneticist and a neurogeneticist at Harvard. And uh, Still, still. Still, yeah, yeah. right now. And we wrote two previous books, Super Brain and Super Genes. So Super Brain was about neuroplasticity, that with your thoughts and experiences and your choices, you can change the neural networks of your brain. And then Super Genes was actually about the fact that you can regulate your genes as well, the microbiome, etc. So the healing self goes beyond that. Uh, looking at the body as a holistic experience, in consciousness and as an activity of the total universe. So you and I right now and everything that's happening is an activity of the total universe. If you want to call it God, that's good. <laughs> I, I'm almost certain we're going to have a part two with this. I don't know when it's going to be, but I, I'd like to go a little bit deeper and with the, the topics. And by the way, if people think this is flaky, that's all right. No, it's not about, I, I, I think, believe it or not, for me, my, if I had a university, if I ran a university one day, it was called Bay David University and you, and you went to it. I don't like the way UC Berkeley does it. I don't like the way Duke does it. I don't like the way a lot of these schools do it. And here's what I mean by I don't like the way they do it. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean by that. I, I love opposition. I love it. I love debate. I love when a person with strong opinions, beliefs, or knowings. Let me say it like that so you're not gonna correct me and say- Knowing is okay, good. Okay, fair so enough. I, I'm more on beliefs, but fair enough. You with knowings. I want my students to watch that and based on that, the right people to have a fire in their belly to take that level of doubt that they don't have to give birth to curiosity that they go get for themselves and say, I don't know if I agree with him. I don't know if I agree with him. But regardless, let me go research and find out for myself. If we did that, our job was well done. Curiosity is the most divine experience we can have in addition to bewilderment, astonishment, humility, and reference. Now let me conclude. The, everything I've said, I can conclude in one sentence. If you can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, conceptualize it, imagine it, think about it, or perceive it, it's not real. What is real is the invisible without which none of that would be possible. So the sushi I had last night was not real. Nor is the body. <laughs> <laughs> They're transient experiences in consciousness. Look, there are certain, we bring a lot of people that are business and you know I love talking about business. It's my, it's, I'm fascinated by it, but I also like to talk to people who have opinions and beliefs and truths like he does, a level of certainty, because that, uh, that can give birth to doing research and topics to make the arguments even, even stronger or to find the kinks in an argument to have to make your own adjustments and pivots again to be more childlike and want to learn even more. By the way, if you're watching this and, and you, you, you got something from it or you have a question or something in your mind, uh, I want you to tweet at Dr. Deepak Chopra. What is your Twitter handle, by the way? At uh, Deepak Chopra. So there's no doctor in front no, of it, it's just Deepak just Chopra. If you can send a tweet Deepak at Deepak Chopra, your takeaway question, whatever you may have, and uh, who knows, you may get a response, you oh, may I'll not. Oh, I'll do but, my best to. Okay, respond. so send a tweet to him. 
uh, at Deepak Chopra. And then obviously, if what he talked about interests you, you got one of 88 books to choose from. Just go on Amazon, type in Deepak, you'll see how many will pop up. Obviously, this is the most recent one that just came out. Uh, Dr. Chopra, thank you so much oh, for making the time. You. I really thank enjoyed it. Truly appreciate you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.